listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. From Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all of you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayers. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. So do this with me. I want you to go back in your memory to 1.30 a.m. last Sunday morning. And I want you to picture where you were. And I want you to think about what you were feeling in those moments. Now, I think for us, the, the, the strongest part of the storm hit 12.15, 12.30-ish, about 1.30 in the morning. Some of you were dozing, like you were just out of touch with reality. In fact, Emily said, John, I hear something. I said, I'm, it's probably the ceiling fan. And it was not. It was the sirens. Some of you don't remember anything about, about that, but lots of you will remember what you were thinking and feeling at 1.30 in the morning last uh, Sunday morning. Some of you, you know, you were seasoned Okies and you have never taken shelter in your lives and you looked out the window and for some of you, you saw these great big trees swaying a little more than they should have and you're like, wake the kids, get them in the closet or in the bathtub, like this is going to be the one. It was a little bit scary. Some of us weren't at home when the storm hit and you began getting texts at, at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, which is a terrible time to be getting texts. Usually indicates something bad happened and you've heard that maybe massive branches have fallen on your house and you're beginning to feel anxiety and dread about what will you see when you pull up to your home when you get back. And some of us were feeling shaken because, you know, we, we tried to get out and go around and you couldn't get out of your driveway, couldn't get out of your street or your cul-de-sac. Some of you remember around 1.30 in the morning looking up and seeing the sky and you shouldn't have been able to see the sky because you were standing in your bedroom. And you could feel conversations with insurance adjusters coming and you were dreading how long does this mean we're going to be displaced after the storm hit, I got in my truck and I, I tried to drive around our neighborhood, mostly unsuccessfully, trying to check on friends' houses. And I managed to get out on Harvard and I went underneath I-44 to, to see how the church is doing. Luckily, we're one 
gigantic like slab of, of concrete. This is the one time that's beneficial. And, uh, but I was driving underneath I-44, and I saw folks hiding up under the overpass, and I thought, I wonder what they're feeling. What would it have been like to weather that kind of storm outside as a person experiencing homelessness? I know how my family felt the next morning when we went out. We, we have this great thing on our street where we have massive trees. And for some reason, these yellow-crowned night herons, these huge water birds, they look like dinosaurs, have chosen to roost in, like make nests in these trees on our street. And six, seven years later, they're still coming back. They poop everywhere, but they're beautiful to look at. And walking the street the next day, we saw so many casualties of these birds that are kind of a spectacle of our neighborhood that everyone stops under to look at. And, you know, our, our family's heart was broken over these creatures that God made. It made us feel really sad. For some of us, what was lost is something that's not easily recovered, but probably for many of us, what we experienced this week is ultimately going to be chalked up to one really big inconvenience, <laughs> It's, you know, a temporary displacement that we're going to end up sorting out with insurance adjusters and contractors, and, and, and we'll manage to be okay. I, I do want to say thank you at this point to folks who are in our church who were a big part of the rebuilding and bringing order to the middle of it. So we have folks in our church who work for the Tulsa Police Department and Tulsa Fire Department who are first responders. We have folks in our church who work for PSO and for Cox Communications. We also have a bunch of people who were just motivated and owned chainsaws and went out and helped their neighbors. And so I just want to say a word of thank you to all the people who were helpers this week as we clean up. But I'll be honest, as the week progressed, I found myself knowing that it was ultimately for our family just one big inconvenience, that I, f I had these big feelings that seemed to outsize the situation, at least for my family that I felt sad. I even felt a little bit of grief over some of the things that we lost this week. A lot of us lost groceries, but many of us lost mature trees, and trees matter. Trees are really important, and when you see these great big trees that have been around since before Tulsa was a city or Oklahoma was a state, you know, that's not easily replaced. Some of us lost a feeling of security in our homes when you've got a branch going through your bathroom or your linen closet. You're robbed of a little a sense of security. Uh, we, there were things that were lost. And so as I was thinking about regathering as the church on the other side of us, wondering if some of you may be feeling similarly to me, a little bit sad, a little bit shaken, a little bit of grief, I actually shifted from the texts that were assigned today and thought, in what ways might the scriptures give us a pathway or give us a way of articulating all the things that we're thinking and feeling to the Lord in a way that would be helpful and lead toward greater intimacy with Him and wholeness for us. And so that's what we're going to do by leveraging the Psalms. One of the themes that emerged for me in my thinking about this is, is what the whole witness of Scripture teaches us about how we are meant to process all of the things that we think and feel and experience in life. And the insight that came to the service for me as I'm driving through West Tulsa was if you can't name it, the things that you're thinking and feeling and processing, if you don't have the courage or the ability to bring these things to the fore, you can't tame it. It's going to have a level of mastery over you. If you can't name it, you can't heal. You can't ultimately get over the things that 
you've experienced. We need to be able to candidly name, this is my reality and this is how I'm feeling about it. And I think this is an important reminder. You guys know all of this. But this is an important reminder because so many of us get to a place in life where we're emotionally and spiritually constipated. And you don't want to be that way. Amen? No. Uh, where things just pile up within. And it could be something that, that happened five weeks ago or five months ago or five years ago. There are among us people who have things that happened 50 years ago that you've never candidly processed with the Lord. Maybe you've not even been fully honest with yourself. And you've been, there's been a lack of intimacy between you and the people nearby because you've never, in the, in the presence of safe people and of the Lord, brought these things to the front. And so there's, you're blocked up on the inside. And if we don't name those inner realities, in time they grow more powerful. They, they, can, they can contribute to serious issues in our relationship with ourselves, with others, with the Lord. And, and a fundamental reality is that secrets are bad. Even like a surprise birthday party is a secret that you shouldn't keep too long because keep, people can smell the withholding of information. You might think of secrets as unconfessed realities or unprocessed realities, and those secrets have a way of festering and mutating, and they become more powerful than they were at the beginning simply by virtue of keeping them in the dark. And those secrets, you know, you think about the, what we might call negative emotions like anger or fear or shame, that repressing those also has an effect on our experience of the positive emotions of joy and gratitude and closeness. That it turns out that we can't repress one category of our feelings or emotions or life experience without in some way it affecting our ability to access the positive, having a wholehearted experience of the others, which is why the scriptures in innumerable ways invite us to bring things from the dark into the light. Uh, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That by virtue of keeping this thing unconfessed, I am going unhealed. And I'm going to show you, is, is just a reminder how the Psalms also model this for us. But what's really unfortunate is that in many faith communities, these kind of emotionally unhealthy practices of repressing the things that we think and feel, this kind of emotional dishonesty is characterized as being virtuous. It's like our ability to just stuff it down is like a sign that we're a person of great faith. I won't admit that I'm disappointed with God or hacked off at you or disgusted with the church because that's a negative confession. It's like, don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby, you know? Or we fear that by bringing some thought or feeling or experience into the open, we think that it's going to grow more powerful when the opposite is actually true. That by keeping that thing hidden, it's actually putting its claws into us deeper and gaining greater mastery over us. The power is in the secrecy. If you can't name it with candor, with safety, you can't tame it. And what each of us need is a guide 
is, is a guide, a friend, a template, a script for what we do when we experience all of these big emotions. Today I'm talking particularly about the negative ones in a way that takes us along the pathway toward healing and wholeness. And for thousands of years, for millions upon millions of people, the Psalms have done just this, giving a pathway within good guardrails. Psalm 6 that Kyle read for us just a minute ago fits into a category that's called psalms of lament. It's psalms of whining or complaint. And the psalms of lament follow a pretty predictable pattern in the scriptures. It's like there's, there's, there's some, it's fitting within a genre of Hebrew poetry. A psalm of lament generally begins with some kind of complaint. It's venting before the Lord. We'll walk through David's venting in just a minute. Uh, the complaint is followed by a petition, which is asking God to do stuff, asking God to intervene in the situation that I'm complaining about. And then generally, the, the psalm of lament will end with some form of resolution, a reframing to the big picture of how my problem, my issue, fits into the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. The prayers of lament are motivated at first by something that has gone wrong in our lives. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, the primary language of prayer is people calling out their trouble, their pain, their guilt, their doubt, despair to God. Their lives are threatened. If they don't get help, they'll be dead or diminished to some critical degree. The language of prayer is forged in the crucible of trouble. When we can't help ourselves and we call for help, when we don't like where we are and want out, when we don't like who we are and we want to change, we use primal language, meaning language that you don't have to overthink. It just effervesces. It just comes out. You ever had a moment where you're like, I'm so sorry, it just came out. This is the language of prayer. And this language becomes the foundation or the root, the way that we're meant to talk to God. Here's David's complaint in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 6. He says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. And then here's his complaint, like this disease I feel within. How long, Lord, how long? How long is one of the most often repeated prayers in the Bible? Of people who are like, this stinks. Why aren't you intervening? When are you going to do something? Like, when are you going to make good on all of your promises, that whole new Jerusalem recreating the heavens and earth thing? Like, this would be a great time for that to happen. How long? David is complaining. What's, what's fascinating in verses 1 through 3 are also the opening verses to Psalm 38 which it's like, I don't know if you're one of those people or you know one of those people who can't say a negative thing without offering like three words of preface. Like, okay, I know what I'm about to say is probably not good and I know that this is what you're going to say in response to that. It's almost like David is doing that. He's gearing up that, okay, Lord, I'm going to process some big stuff with you here, so just be nice to me in advance. It seems like that's, he's, he has a little bit of a script in his conversation with the Lord that he repeats in Psalm 38. It's like, Lord, will you please just let me get this out? Don't critique anything I'm about to say. I'm worn out. Throw me a bone and be nice. My soul is bearing unbearable pain, and I just want to know at what point are you going to deal with this? 
one of the first times that I got counseling 10 plus years ago, I was in conversation with my therapist, and one of the things that I was having to deal with was I felt this instinct that the words that I said needed to be prepared to be etched in stone. As if anybody cares what I said. <laughs> my therapist said to me, he's like, look, most people are abiding by the 20-second rule. They're going to think about you and the thing that you said for 20 seconds, and at the end of that, do you know what they're going to do? They're going to go back to thinking about themselves. <laughs> they don't care. And so he gave me a little bit of scripting. You could say things like, hey, my current thinking on this topic is, and I was like, that's so helpful. Just like when I was, Emily and I were early married, and I read this book called The Introvert's Advantage. And they said, imagine that you're at a wedding and you're seated with some people that you don't know. What do you say to them? And then like, I don't know. What does one say in that situation? They said, you could ask them, how do you know the bride or groom? And again, I'm... I've developed socially since then a little bit. <laughs> it's helpful at times to have social scripting. And David, even in his life with God, is following a kind of script. It's like getting all those prefaces out there. Go easy on me. I'm not going to say this perfectly. I'm feeling big feelings, and I need to be heard right now. What is your deal? And all of us can relate to moments of exasperation. It could have been this week. Uh, of how do you manage children when it's 140 degrees inside of your house? Or many in our church are caring for aging parents and finding that's a, that's a unique challenge that people didn't prepare you for, you just didn't see coming. Or you live with other people and you, you love your roommates, but you're finding out that you actually don't like them all that much and living together is not super fun. Or you like your job, you hate your manager. Maybe finances have been tight for you and you just feel overwhelmed. A tree falls in your front yard and you're just wondering, like, how can I put gas in the tank this week? These are kind of the, 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 the walking worries that many of us carry. Some of us are in more acute situations where the crises that we're facing, we feel like no one else gets what it's like to be me right now. And you feel a level of loneliness or burden that, that feels greater than your capacity to handle. And we don't need to compare sufferings. It's not like you must have suffered this much to be validated in praying a prayer of lament. Each of us knows our own pains and griefs. Sometimes the crucible of trouble just pr produces within you this emotional geyser that desperately needs to, to burst so you can blow off some steam. And sometimes, many of you will know what this is like, you have grief or pain or difficulty greater than you can bear. You can't even put words to it, and what you most need to do is just have a good cry. Charles Spurgeon talks about the holiness of those kind of tears. He says, weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. Weeping is an unstammering orator, needing no interpreter but understood of all. And is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate intercession which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy despite the stony difficulties which obstruct the way. My God, I will weep when I cannot plead for thou hearest the voice of my weeping. 
David has named his grief. His, he's, he's, he's put words to his complaints to the Lord, and then he transitions to a petition. Verse 4, he says simply, turn, Lord, and deliver me. In other words, there's a feeling God's not facing me right now. There's a feeling that God is aloof to the things that are important to me. So, Lord, turn and deliver me. Intervene. Why? Because you love me. Save me. And what's kind of funny is in verses 5 through 7, David, having written this, remembering that God loves him, he's like, you know what? I actually have a little more to complain about. I'm not quite done. That felt good. Verse 5, he says, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. He's saying, Lord, this is the only life that I have. And if in this life you don't turn and deliver me, I'm feeling like, what's the point? I groan all day, I weep all night, I am exhausted. And if you go through, and you should, with a psalm like this, and paraphrase it or even put some of it in your own words, I hope that you appreciate that despite the flowery language, there's actually a certain inelegance to it. That David is just saying the stuff that you might say or I might say if we were really honest or if we felt like we had the safety to name such things to the Lord. It's unfiltered processing that is not even a little bit self-invalidating. John Calvin, picking up on this, says, Here we have permission given to us to lay open before God our infirmities, which we would be ashamed to confess before others. It's actually quite the opposite of our instincts. That we think, we think things that, like, that we feel betray us, that that cause us to feel shame. It's things that we would never articulate even to those that we are closest to. Calvin is saying those are the very things that we can take to the throne of grace. That without invalidating ourselves, something that is so difficult for so many of us, we can simply name our inner realities to the Lord. The psalm begins with a complaint. It goes on to a petition. Then David makes his way toward a resolution. This is verses 8 through 10. He says, Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. I love that repetition. Hear the safety in it. The Lord has heard me. The Lord has heard my cry. The Lord accepts my prayer. Most of my pop culture references are only understood by like three people a service, and it's usually not the same three from the last service. But there was this band in the 90s called Toad the Wet Sprocket. They had a song called Listen. It says, call you faithless, call you obscene, call you thankless, call you anything, but call and you listen. David is feeling that the divine ear has, in fact, turned toward him. He said, turn to me, Lord, and deliver me. And David is here three times saying, the Lord has turned. He's heard my weeping. He's heard my cry. The Lord accepts my prayer. So all of my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Now, I don't know David's exact situation. He's got something going on with enemies. He almost always does. So we have to guess a bit at the meaning of his words. But we do get the sense in reflecting on his words that something has resolved for David. 
The thing that has resolved for him is he knows that the Lord has heard him. And the prayer itself is kind of a double win. First of all, David has had the ability that not all of us exercise of naming his inner realities. But the second win is that he has named those inner realities to the Lord, one who's able to help us manage these things. He has said the thing that he needed to say, and now he's coaching his soul to return to a posture of trust. Now, sometimes the resolution in a psalm of lament is not quite so neat. Sometimes it's like, so I hope you better, I hope you break their jaws because they're awful people. And sometimes it's like, yeah, and if you don't help me, I'm sunk. But in either case, there is hidden within that an expression of trust. You're the one who's going to have to intervene, and I'm counting on you to do it. Often the psalmist is looking for a way to return to a posture of trust that God is going to make stuff right. Now, what I'd love to do is to challenge you to find some, to, to, to put voice to some of your own laments. I challenge you today or this week to write your own psalm of lament to God. And it could be as simple as answering a couple of questions in a journal format. Some of you may feel a little bit more artsy and you want to throw in some rhyme and meter. Have at it. I'm not going to read it. Let your voice be heard. But you might exercise those, those uh, coming at prayer in another way by writing a psalm of lament. A first question you might ask yourself is, what do you want to complain about? Now, let's actually just take the mic, mic for a minute, and I'd love to hear. Jed, we'll start with you. No. Um, <laughs> this is not going to be a difficult question for most of us to answer. What do you want to complain about? It, it could be a financial situation, could be your house, could be a relationship. Many of ours are probably going to be social to some degree, but what do you want to complain about? setting up your complaints to the Lord. And the, the second question you might uh, consider is, what do you want God to do about it? You may have never entertained this second question, but you know really well the answer to the first one. What are you asking? Sometimes in conversations with people, I'll say like, okay, I get the sense that you want to make an ask of me. What is it? I'm just giving them permission to do it. And then we're giving, giving you permission. The scriptures are giving us permission to make an ask of the Lord. What do you want God to do about it? And then finally, and this is where we see the guardrails guiding us along toward healing and wholeness and intimacy with the Lord. What, as you're processing this complaint, is a truth that you can come back to and stand upon with confidence? I love how the author, David Taylor, he wrote a book called Open and Unafraid on the Psalms. David is actually coming to Cornerstone in August to preach. He is the guy who got together Eugene Peterson and Bono from U2 to, like, on film talk about the Psalms. David's going to come and preach here at the end of August. David, speaking about the Psalms, said, We are not the first to experience doubt. In your life with God, you may be like, I'm one of the ones with doubt. Oh, what do I do with it? It's scary. We're not the first to experience doubt. The Psalms remind us. Our experiences of anger and depression, these things are not original, even if they are personally felt as if for the first time. Others have been there. Others have crafted words and faith that bear repeating. We have in the Psalms a tradition as the people of God, and that tradition hands over to us good words. 
Many of us could take the Psalms and treat them like mad libs. It's like wipe out the psalmist issue and write in our own. The psalm gives us a structure to give thanks and to lament, to ask for help and to rejoice in the beauty of creation. All of these things are here. I think that the greatest failure that most of us commit, and I would say this is, I am chief among those who fail in this way, that our greatest failure is not praying in the wrong way, but failing to pray at all. That here I am processing all of these big things, functionally behaving as if the Lord is indifferent to them. Like, gosh, I stand in front of people, wouldn't you think that I know better? We self-filter, self-invalidate to such a degree that we no longer have a relationship of candor with the Lord. And candor is a sign of safety and security. Our failure is not that we pray the wrong things, but that we fail to pray at all. We think we have to be perfect, that our words have to be chiseled into stone. We pretend that we're not broken as if we are fooling God. David Taylor again says, in the end... To ignore these words or these, these darker inward realities, inner realities, or to choose more polite words is to believe that God cannot handle our broken humanity. It's to believe that God has forgotten how we are made. But God has not forgotten. God has not run out of compassion. In Christ, He suffers with us. In Christ, he shares our brokenness. He too, Jesus knows what it's like to pray with loud cries. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve and to feel distress. Jesus too weeps and he too has felt abandoned and forsaken. And this, friends, is one of the greatest gifts that we receive in our understanding of Jesus as our great high priest or Jesus as our mediator. The scriptures say there's one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who knows what it's like to be a person. Jesus, who knows what it's like to have a mom and dad. Jesus, who knows what it's like to be in close relationship with others. Jesus, who knows what it's like to be a single person. He knows what it's like to be a human being. Takes these prayers of ours that sometimes are, are, are low on faith and sometimes are full of expletives and sometimes are full of doubt and they're meandering. And Jesus takes these sloppy prayers of ours and like a good mediator, dusts them off and reshapes them and says, Father, I want to tell you exactly how Brody's feeling right now. I want to tell you exactly what Amy is experiencing in this moment. And Jesus lives to intercede for us in this way. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus bearing his own vulnerabilities, the scars in his hands and the wounds in his side, takes the vulnerabilities that you and I bear and presents them before the face of God. And what's more, the scriptures also tell us when we find ourselves at those moments where we don't even know how to pray for ourselves, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that are deeper than words. Friends, as we come to the table today, I want to encourage you to come with your gratitude and to come with your complaints. That some of you particularly who have been habituated out of a candid life with the Lord may need to begin the process of lament, working your way toward resolution by simply beginning with the complaint of, Lord, here's the thing that's been on my mind and my heart. 
And some of you may be yet unable to do that, and you need to pray instead liquid tears and let your heart and your soul simply be born before the Lord and let it come out of your eyes as salty discharge. And know that the Lord sees your tears and hears the the cries that are coming from you. And all of us as we come to the table are meant to take our cares and our concerns and our joys and place them at the cross of Christ, casting our cares on him because he cares for us and he lives to intercede for us. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.